One of the most difficult things to do in life is to uh, listen to and accept the advice of others. Whether you solicit that advice or it's given to you because they think that uh, they have something to offer, it still nonetheless is a difficult thing to do. And it seems especially true of young people. It seems like young people in their relationship to older people have a very difficult time heeding the advice of others. If you have children, you know how difficult it can be at times to offer such advice. Um, I'm sure that you've probably heard the argument that, you know, you just can't relate. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, think this argument through for a second. If you have children and they tell you that you can't relate as if somehow you were born old. <laughs> there, there's only one set of parents that that argument ever worked on. And that was Adam and Eve. Now think about the hard time they had when their kids said, you don't understand, you've never been a child. Uh, you know, so they may be the only people that really had a good argument against that. But, but the, the point is, is that, you know, sometimes as parents we can give silly advice. Sometimes that advice is born of frustration. And one of my favorite stories that I've shared before is the story of the mother who was frustrated with her son who was about seven years of age and continued to suck his thumb. And, he tried to, and she tried to do everything she could to get him to break that nasty habit. They put stuff on the thumb so it would taste bad. And they tried to, you know, put him in time out if it continued to do it. And everything that they tried to do just didn't work. And so out of frustration one day, finally, she pointed to a big heavyset man. And they were out somewhere. And she pointed to that man. And she said, listen, if you keep sucking your thumb, that's what you're going to end up looking like. And the little boy went, wow. Well, about two weeks later, the mom and the little boy are in the grocery store, and they're walking down the aisle, and he got separated from her, and he walked around the corner, and he ran into a woman who was about eight and a half months pregnant. And she was huge, and she was about ready just to just break loose, and, uh, and the little boy looked at her and was staring at her, and the, and the woman was getting a little frustrated, and she looked at the little boy and said, you know, son, it's not nice to stare at strangers like that. And he kept staring, and she said, you know, in fact, you know, you, you don't even know me. And the little boy looked up at her, and all of a sudden he went, yeah, but, but, but you know what, I know what you've been doing. <laughs> so, you know, so much for advice. Sometimes that advice out of frustration uh, leads us to where, you know, no one wants to listen to us. But the reason that, that I mentioned this whole thing about advice is, is that, you know, regardless of the advice that we get sometimes, whether it's good or bad, one thing that I do know for sure, and that is this. An evidence of a person who has come into a genuine relationship with God is that they will be a person who is willing to become a disciple. Now, by definition, the word disciple means simply a follower of. Or, more importantly, it means one who is willing to learn. A disciple is a learner. The last great commission that we have of Jesus before he returned to heaven was that we would go into all, all the world, into all nations, making disciples as we go and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all the things that he had commanded us. That this whole idea of discipleship is one where we would be teaching and others would be learning. And not only will we be teaching verbally, but much of what we learn is, is caught rather than taught. We see it as an example uh, lived before our lives, and we catch that example. And we recognize and see that that's basically what discipleship is all about. Teaching precepts or concepts, teaching uh, principles of life, and acquiring knowledge. 
So if you are to be a genuine disciple or if there's a genuine evidence of a relationship with God, you're going to be willing to be open and teachable and willing to learn things that you have never heard before or to live in a way that you have never seen demonstrated in your life before. And it's important that we recognize that that's exactly what we're called to do to watch the example of others, to learn from that. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, hey, the things that you saw in me, the things that you saw me do, the things that you heard me say, those things, receive those things, duplicate those things. He told the church at Thessalonica to become imitators of him just as he was an imitator of Jesus Christ, who was our ultimate example of how we should live in a way that's pleasing to God. So anyway, this whole idea of discipleship I mentioned because as we'll see in, as we continue in our study today is that Ruth is an example of a woman who was a true disciple. Ruth, who was a Moabitess, uh, grew up in a land that did not believe in the God of Israel. She grew up, in, in fact, in an area and among people that were despised by the people of God. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 19, because I think if we understand where she came from, you'll understand how true this is, that she has truly become a disciple of the true living God. In Genesis 19, we're given the sordid history or background of the people of Moab. And this is where Ruth finds her roots in Genesis chapter 19. And this is an amazing thing if you understand what God has done here as we go through the study of taking a woman from such a background and elevating her to the position that one day we'll find her as we go and continue on in the study. But in Genesis chapter 19, look at verse 30 through 38. This is the history of the people of Moab. This is why the people of Israel despised the Moabites. This is why it was such a compromise for Elimelech to leave Israel and Bethlehem and go into the land of Moab. This is who these people were. And in Genesis 19, starting with uh, verse 30, we read this. And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him. And he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in a cave, he and his daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of this earth. What happened was is that God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he remembered Abraham. And so as a favor to Abraham, he spared Lot and his two daughters at this particular point. And so they left. And as they left, they realized that everything that they had known was going to be destroyed. And here were two young women that never had husbands. They never had children. And as far as they knew, it was the end of the world. And what in the world were they going to do as far as the family was concerned? And so the firstborn said to the younger, well, our father is old. So in 32, she says, come and let us make our father drink wine. Let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he didn't even know what was going on. And when she lay down or when she rose up and it came about the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay with my, our father last night. Let's make him drink wine again tonight. Then you can go in and be with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their own father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day, and Moab means from the father. And as for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, who is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. 
And as we look at the history of these people, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they were people that God often used to discipline the people of God. This is the sordid background that they had. That's why they were despised by the Israelites. And that was, that's what makes this so fascinating when we come to the life of Ruth, who Ruth finds her roots in these people, and yet God would still somehow feel a sense to redeem her even though she did not deserve it. And Ruth is blown away by all this. She can't understand what's going on, and it helps us to kind of figure out in a little ways what she has gone through. Now recognize and understand this. The, the, uh, the, the Moabites were people that had despicable practices. And in fact, uh, one particular example is in 2 Kings chapter uh, 3. Look at verse six and, uh, 26 and 27. They had a god that they had made. His name was Kamash. And in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, it shows you how despicable these people were and how they treated their own families says, when the king of Moab, in, in chapter 3 of 2 Kings, verse 26, says, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. And then listen to what he did. He took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and he offered him as a burnt offering on the wall to their god, Kamash. Can you understand, I mean, how despicable these people are? They would offer their children as sacrifices to this God that they made with their own hands. And here they were in this battle, and they were losing this battle, and this king was so, so frustrated and distraught, he didn't know what else to do, but he took his oldest son who was about to inherit the kingdom after he had died, and he said, you know what, I mean, this is my greatest sacrifice that I can make. I'm going to take my son, and I'm going to offer him to this God. Now, it, it happened in this particular case that it worked because, and there came great wrath against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own home. You know, the nation of Israel looked at it and said, we don't want to fight people that are that crazy. These people are nuts. This guy took his own son who was going to become king, and he offered him as a sacrifice to some loony god that they made up. I mean, you don't want to fight a crazy person. And it said they just took off and ran. I mean, you all probably knew people like that growing up. I mean, we had a guy that, that played football with us who was the craziest person I ever met in my life. And you did not, you, don't, you didn't even look at him unless he asked you to, because he was nuts. You just don't fight crazy people. They don't fight fair, because they're crazy. And so that's what happened here. But, you know, you look at this and you go, man, I mean, this is the kind of people that she comes from. And yet, as you go through this and you begin to realize, now think about this. You're, you're Ruth. You've grown up in this environment. You don't know who God is. You don't know anything about his laws or his ways. You've never seen these practices lived out in your life. And yet, as she comes into this relationship with Naomi and her family and these people that know who God is and they live according to a standard that God has set, she begins to become attracted to their lifestyle. And as she gives her life to this God, we see that she becomes very open and teachable to the ways of these people. And so she becomes literally, in a sense, she becomes a disciple. She becomes a follower, willing to learn, willing to listen to advice, willing to accept counsel. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we go back to Ruth chapter 3. But we're going to see that, you know what, it even pays, sometimes it even pays to listen to your mother-in-law. And that's what she found out in Ruth chapter 3, starting with verse 1. We'll read the first four verses to get started. We read this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you 
that it may be well with you. And now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, the winnow's barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. In these first four verses, we're going to take a look at the advice that Naomi is going to give. But before we do that, I want you to stop, as, as I mentioned a second ago, put yourself into her position. Put yourself into Ruth's position for a second. She is getting blown away by everything that's going on. Because everything to her at this point is a new experience. Everything that she sees in the life of Naomi, everything she hears from the standpoint of what who God is and what he's all about, the standards that he has, the laws that he has. I mean, she's just getting blown away by all of this. She has never seen this type of lifestyle lived out in front of her. In fact, she has seen exactly the opposite all of her life until she met them. Now she's being told to live a certain way, and it's got to be so confusing as it is to some of us because some of these laws are very confusing to us. Think about the first law that we learned about last week, and that was the law of gleaning where God would provide for poor people by telling landowners you can't take all of the, the crops out of your land. You have to leave some of them behind so that poor folks can come onto your land and they can get what they need for their daily sustenance. So you can't have everything that, you, that, you've, uh, that you've planted. You can't harvest all of it. And so, I mean, can you imagine now, here's Ruth, who, if you went on to somebody's property in Moab and tried to take something because you were poor, they would have killed you. You don't take something from somebody else's property. You don't benefit from somebody else's labor. And so now here she is in Bethlehem, and she's being told, well, you know, we have this law here. It's called gleaning. And poor people can go out into the field, and they can get what they need because they're poor, and that's God's way of providing for poor people. So go ahead out and do it. Now, I can see her walking out just going, I've never heard of this. And as she got starting to do it, she saw there were other poor people doing it, and then all of a sudden, she began to realize that, hey, this must be true. And so that's what she did. Now, the second law that we were introduced just very briefly last time was found in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, when Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, hey, where did you go and glean and who took favor upon you? And uh, she told him who it was. And Naomi said, hey, this is awesome because this man Boaz is, our, is a kinsman redeemer. Goel is the word in Hebrew and it's used over and over again to emphasize the point that's being made throughout this book. And that is that he is our kinsman, our relative who can redeem us. Now, here's another law that she's not familiar with, has never heard of it in her life, and she's going to have to learn to understand and deal with it. And so what we need to look at is in Leviticus chapter 25, we need to introduce ourselves to this law because see what God does, he gave, he gave the land to the nation of Israel. He not only gave it to the people, but he also gave it to uh, not, not only just the, the land to the nation as a whole, but he divided the land up. And if you got, you know, a Bible, you'll see the map in the back or wherever. But you'll see that the 12 sons of Israel, or the 12 sons of Jacob, those 12 tribes, we call it, were broken up into 12 territories. And each one of those territories was assigned to a certain son. 
And so he gave the land not only collectively to a people, but he also gave them to a certain son. And within that tribe, he gave it the land to families. So we see that this land is given to the people, but in Leviticus chapter 25, we see this law in relationship to the land and how God would protect it. He says in Leviticus 25, verse 23, he says, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. Listen, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with, with me. I like this. He's telling the nation of Israel, he said, listen, you can't sell this land to anybody else because you don't own it. The land is mine. And so it's not yours to negotiate. You can't sell it, you can't trade it, you can't do anything that you want with it because I own it. Man, what a concept that goes back to our financial principles of God owns everything and all we are are managers or, or in this particular case he says you are aliens or tenants or strangers to this property. I'm going to allow you the blessing of using it for your benefit but you can't sell it. it says so for every piece of your property you're to provide for the redemption of the land. You see what he's saying? And he says, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest what? Kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. That word kinsman is the same word of goel, which we saw last time, and it has to do simply with he is a redeemer or a relative who can buy it back. Now, here's the way this works. We already saw that Elimelech, uh, must have gotten so, so destitute because of the famine and their famines would come along because of their disobedience. So what God would do is when the nation of Israel or these particular tribes were disobedient, he would send in oppressors. Many times it was the Moabites. They oppressed Israel for 18 years. Sometimes it was the Ammonites or the Canaanites or, or the Jesuitites or the Mosquitoites and whatever else. You know, you throw those all out there and everyone was biting them all the time. And uh, so God said, okay, look, you know what? If you will disobey me, then you're going to be oppressed. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. It's as simple as that. And so what happened was they would become oppressed because of famine that God would send as a judgment for their disobedience. Now, if you had two or three years of famine, what would end up happening is that you would end up being so hungry and starving that there would be somebody else that would come along and say, hey, well, we'll give you money, but you have to mortgage us your land. Great. But, but to understand something here, every 50 years, the land would be given back to the original family so that that family never lost its rights to that land. And so what we don't understand is this concept of the year of Jubilee, which was every 50 years, no matter who owned the land, quote, from a mortgage standpoint, they had to give that property back to the original people who God had given it to so that they never lost their land rights. Now, let's just say that you were so destitute. In the case of Elimelech, he was. That's why he sold his property and ended up moving to Moab and ended up with nothing. That's why Ruth and Naomi are in the impoverished state that they are today because they don't have any land rights anymore. It was all gone. So they sold it. So now think for a second that you, you go out and you sell your property and you get something in exchange for it. And, you know, this is in the third year of the year of Jubilee. So that means that for 47 more years, somebody else is going to have a mortgage against your property and you have no more land rights. And that's a long time in between 50 years. I mean, if you sell that thing in the third year and you have to wait 47 years, good chances are that you'll probably die and it was your children who would end up assuming those land rights again after the year of Jubilee. But anyway, the point is this. 
Someone could come along, you could have a rich uncle and say, man, you know what, you had to sell your land? Well, that's not right, because that's really in our family, and we shouldn't have somebody else living on that land and, and farming that land. And so you got some rich uncle who comes down the street and he says, what, what happened to your land? Well, I had to sell it because we're impoverished. Okay, well, here, let me buy it back for you. The whole concept of redemption. Let me buy back that which you lost. You lost it and you mortgaged it, but I'll go ahead and I'll write the check for you and then you can have it back. So that is what God allowed as a provision when people lost their land, that it could be redeemed. So not only could the land be redeemed, but, but one step further, if you look at Leviticus 25, look at verses 47 through 48. Sometimes it got so bad that not only did people sell their land, but if this kept going and the money that they got for selling their land wasn't enough to sustain them until finally the economy turned around, in this case, until they finally repented and God began to bless them again, but now what would happen was they would offer to sell themselves into slavery so that their children would be taken care of. So not only did they go and say, look, not only will we sell you the land, but that guy may go back to the person who mortgaged his land and say, you know what, I'm, I'm flat broke again. And so what I'll do now is I'll offer to sell you myself and I will work for you for the rest of the, the duration of this contract, which may be, like I said, anywhere up to 49 years. And I will work for you until this is over as your slave so that you take care of my children and my children don't starve to death. So in Leviticus 25 and verse 47, we see the same concept here. If the means of a stranger or sojourner with you become sufficient and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption rights after he has been sold. And one of his brothers may redeem him. It starts with the closest member of family and it works its way to extended family. But the point is this is that you can, you can become so poor you sell yourself into slavery. So God's provision in the law is that, hey, if somebody comes down the street with a checkbook and he wants to buy you out of slavery, then he can do that. And he will become your redeemer. In the case of the land, he will buy the land back that you lost. In the case of a person, he will buy your freedom back that you lost. Why is this so important? Don't forget what we mentioned a week ago. And that is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, we read this, that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. That we may be justified by faith. The kinsman redeemer, as we see throughout this book, is a picture of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in his work on the cross. The reason in the New Testament the word redemption is used instead of atonement is that atonement covered sin. Redemption means to buy back that which was lost. And so in the case of the Redeemer, Jesus buys us back as a person because we have been lost from fellowship to God. We have been lost to sin. We have become a slave of sin. And now we need somebody to redeem us from our new owner who is Satan and we become a slave to him and so this whole picture of redemption that we see here is to lead us to understand how God was going to free us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ don't miss the purpose of the story this just isn't a love story between Boaz and Ruth although it's wonderful in and of itself but it's to become a type or a picture of what God would do in the future in the person and the work of Jesus Christ we have been lost to sin and now he will come and he will redeem us and buy us back 
That is what we're trying to get across as we go through this, and it's critical that we understand it. The only picture of this Redeemer that's used in all of the Old Testament is the picture that we see being used in the story that we're studying, and that's the story of Boaz. He is the picture and, and the forerunner or shadow, so to speak, of what Jesus will do for us as he's come to set us free from sin. It's critical that we understand it and as we go through it. Now, as we looked at, go back to Ruth chapter 2. The last time we're together, we get to the end of Ruth chapter 2, and we realize and we, and we understand that, you know what, Boaz meets Ruth, and Boaz is just crazy about Ruth. I mean, Boaz is deeply in love with Ruth. When Ruth comes back to Naomi and gives a report of this gleaning experience, and she comes back with 60 pounds, uh, or 30 pounds in this case, of, um, of, um, of barley or wheat, and she comes back and says, hey, how did it go with you? Yeah, I don't know, how's this look? And she started dumping all this stuff out. And I could just see Naomi just start doing the jig. <laughs> it's going good, man. It's going good. And so she's all excited about it. And so Boaz says, hey, you don't go in anybody else's field. You don't need to go to anybody else. You just come out here and I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. And then we read these words at the end of chapter 2. It says that, um, so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz, and this is speaking of Ruth, to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we need to recognize that we're talking about a six-week period of time that Ruth continues to go out into the fields of Boaz, continues to glean. Boaz is walking around like a puppy dog in love. Man, he's just like all over himself. He can't believe this is happening. And for six weeks this is going on, and everybody in town's talking, Boaz is going down. Boaz is going down, finally met his match. Boaz is down the tubes, it's all over, and they're all excited about it. But this is going on for six weeks. And so now for six weeks, Naomi's sitting around watching Ruth, and Ruth just ain't getting it done. You know, she just like, you know, she just, she just doesn't understand what's going on. And so Ruth, you know, so, so uh, Naomi's going to come up with a little advice. And that's what we see here in, in verses 1 through 4. Naomi comes up with some advice. For six weeks, she's been watching Ruth, and Ruth is just not making any moves. She's just going out and she's gleaning and she's coming home and, and Naomi's like, would you, could you? And so for six weeks, she's come up with a plan. Now the purpose, first of all, in verse 1 of chapter 3 is, Naomi said to her mother-in-law, hey, my daughter, listen, I want to give you a little advice. I want to give you a little advice. Shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? See, the purpose of the advice is that she has Ruth's best interest at heart. And let me just let me share a little tidbit with you. If you ever plan to give anybody else advice, it's really important that they recognize that it's because you have their best interest at heart. Sometimes the worst people to go to for counsel are people that have an objective, a, a, a subjective interest in the outcome. What Naomi's saying is, hey, I just want you to know, I've got your best interest at heart, and, and don't you think it's only proper that I seek security for you? And in this particular case, it has specifically to do with the only way that a woman found security in that particular culture, and it should be the same today, really, if she's designed to be married, is to find a husband who will pr protect her and provide for her. 
And so Naomi's saying, don't you think that it's just, you know, natural that I would seek to find security and comfort for you? That's, that's the whole purpose of my advice, okay? So, so don't misunderstand me. Let me just share, share it with you. That's exactly, that's the only reason I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. Because I, I want what's best for you. And so now here's the plan that she's had six weeks to uh, come up with. And so she says to her, all right, now Boaz is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maid you were. Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. All right, now, we need to understand something. Now, if you think the last two things, those last two laws were a little strange about how you can go into somebody else's field and you can be provided for and how if you lost your land, somebody could come and buy it back for you. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25 for a second because this one is going to be the weirdest one of them all. So to understand what she's telling her, look at Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10. We read this, now when brothers live together, one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go under and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. You see, God's protecting the land and he's also protecting the, the families and their name and their heritage. Now, here's this particular law. You got brothers who are all living together, and one brother starts to date somebody. You know, and the other brothers are like, hey, man, where you been going? He's like, oh, nowhere. I haven't gone anywhere. And they're like, hey, no, nah, that's not what we heard. We heard that you've been going out with so-and-so down the street or around the next hill or across the river or wherever. And uh, he's like, well, yeah, maybe. Well, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Now you and I both, all of us understand that if this thing gets a little serious here and you start to fall in love with her and you decide to marry her and God forbid anything would happen to you and you die, then one of us has to take over where you left off. Now if you don't mind, why don't you bring her by so we can all check her out? Ever come by for dinner or something? Guys, we all want, you know, I mean, we got to, I mean, think about it. We all want to have some say into this whole thing. So he brings her by and they're like, hey, we don't like her. We don't like her. Look at her. It's like, there's none of us that want to take over if you go. <laughs> He's like, well, I don't care because I love her and I'm going to marry her anyway. And they get married and then the rest of their life the brothers are all please God please please let him live a long and fruitful life <laughs> hurry up and make them have some kids you know give them that boy right off the bat because if they don't have a boy and he dies and he gets kicked by an ox you know when he's out in the field somewhere um, we're in deep trouble here so all of a sudden this guy dies and now she can come and pick anyone that she wants now, but if the man doesn't desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, hey, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him, speak to him, and if he persists and says, I don't desire to take her, I mean, here's the scene. She goes and says, I like you. And he's like, but I don't like you. And I told him never to marry you to begin with. 
And in fact, I didn't even want to go to the wedding. She said, but I like you anyway. So would you please be my redeemer? And she's like, no, no. So he goes, okay. She says, I'm going to go tell on you. <laughs> That's what she's doing. So she goes to the elders of the city and she says, hey, I picked one. And he said, no. So they said, which one did you pick? And she said, this one. So they send away for that one. That one comes and they sit him down and said, listen, we got to be reasonable here. So she, they, they all try to talk him into assuming his responsibility. But if he still doesn't desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come into the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. This is some scene, isn't it? Can you imagine? I mean, they're standing up here in the gates of the city and everybody's around there going, hey, hurry up, hurry up. She's going to come and pull a sandal off and spit in his face. He's going to be disgraced in front of all his people. So they bring it to this point and he's still like, I am not marrying her. So she bends down and takes off his shoe, stands up, waves it in his face, and just nails him. Well, and then she declares, thus it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel, his name shall be called the house of whom, of him whose sandal is removed. <laughs> now, think about this for a second. You don't want to be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. This isn't something you aspire to do. And so what happens as we look at this is, you know, <laughs> This is what's going on here, okay? So this provision here to provide and to claim, so basically this is her right, okay? This is her right. So Naomi's trying to get across to Ruth. Ruth, you don't understand. This is your right in our culture before our God. These are our laws. You have a right to go claim him as your redeemer because that's God's way of protecting our families and our lineage and our name. So it's like, listen to me, and I got a game plan. So that's what this game plan is. So she's going to send Ruth to the threshing floor. So it says, and now is not Boaz our kinsman? She's saying, hey, isn't he our kinsman? She's there, yes. See, you don't understand. You have a right to go claim him as your redeemer. But you're not doing it. So I need to help you with the plan. So he says, tonight he's going to be at the threshing floor. Now we need to understand, the threshing floor was a specific place where landowners went to go ahead and thresh their, their, uh, their crop, whether it's barley or wheat or whatever. And it was a circular, it sat up on top of a hill, it was a hard clay floor, and it was about 30 feet in circumference, and it had rocks all around it, and they would put their harvest in the middle, and they would have oxen that would walk around on the inside and trample down all of the, uh, the barley or the wheat or whatever and get the grain out of it. And then they would take that and they would throw it up, and that's what separated the chaff, you know, the wheat from the chaff or whatever. And what was left over was the product of your labor, you know, the, the good uh, wheat or good barley or whatever. And so they had a specific schedule that was set up. Well, Ruth, I mean, Naomi checked this all out. Hey, you know what? Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor tonight. It's his turn on the schedule to be there. So what I want you to do is I want you to go down there and I want you to go meet him because he's going to be there working with his family. And I want you to claim him tonight as your redeemer. But what I want you to do, and look what she says, and this is good counsel right here, ladies, wash yourself up. <laughs> Get yourself all cleaned up now and, and uh, go put on your best clothes. Get those morning clothes off. You've been mourning long enough. This is a whole new era right now. This is time to get cleaned up, put on a little bit of, of, uh, of Liz or something. I don't know, whatever it is, and, and uh, go down to the threshing floor. 
But she says, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating. So that's some good godly counsel there, ladies, you know. Hey, get yourself cleaned up, you know. Smell good. I mean, you know, take, clean up, look good. Paint it if you have to and go ahead out there. Now, but when you get there, uh, don't let him know who you are until, now here's some great counsel, until after he has finished eating and drinking. <laughs> and I may add, until after he's finished working too. Hey, now there's some interesting counsel, huh? Ladies, if you want your husbands to listen to you, wait until after he's done working, wait till after he's had a good meal in him and he's satisfied. And it's kind of like the early versions of a guy just sitting in his recliner with a remote control in his hands. <laughs> this guy, wait till after he's done eating and drinking because then you'll be able to talk to him about anything that you want. That's the way guys are. Always been that way, will always be that way. Sissing now, now that's not, isn't it? Oh, okay, ladies, how, now is that not your husband or what? Huh? Can I hear some amens from the women? Amen, and thank you very much. One amen, thank you. All right. I know the rest of you think if you yelled amen, you'd be like going charismatic or something, you know, you get all worried. Oh, anyway, all right. So anyway, that's her advice. So she says, and it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice a place where he lies down. You shall go uncover his feet and lie down. Then he'll tell you what you shall do. All right. Now here's an interesting attitude. Now here's the attitude of most of our children when we give them good godly counsel, isn't it? And Ruth said, hey, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. <laughs> what? Is that not the way it is around your house? Come on now. I said, can you imagine? It was like Ruth like, but, but why? But why do I have to do it like that? Or, you know, I had a different idea. I thought, you know, I'd kind of go a different approach to, you know, and, and you know, I love this. It's like, you know, no buts, no whys, no, hey, well, you know what, Naomi, kind of mind your own business, okay? When I feel like getting a man, I get a, no, you know what, Naomi said this, and she says, hey, whatever you tell me to do, I will do it. What a great attitude. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, that's a, now, whatever I tell you to do, you will do. Do I hear an amen? I didn't think so. All right. But the attitude is awesome. I mean, the attitude is, okay, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. And that's what happened. Now, as we go through this, what about how's Boaz going to respond to all this? And first of all, so you understand too, uh, they're, they're lying down. You know, the, the rocks are like, like that. Okay, that was quick because I'm running out of time. The rocks are like that. And, and what they did was Boaz would be laying with his head to the rocks like this. Right? And the reason they did that was because somebody might come in and steal what they just worked all day to do. So as they were celebrating the fact that there was a harvest and they had all this barley and wheat or whatever stacked up behind them, he would sleep like this and then his feet would be covered down here. And uh, so she said, well, when you sneak in at night, uncover his feet. Uh, Uh-oh, and, and that's it shall say in Israel that he who's the house of him who, uh-oh, um, lie down on the floor in the middle of teaching a lesson. Um, <laughs> all right, so anyway, that's where, that, that, that was just to help you, a little visual aid there. I couldn't draw it. I was going to put a little sticky people up here, but I didn't think it was. <laughs> okay, so she went down to verse 6, and she went to the threshing floor. Now we have to see, okay, now does Boaz accept all this? Well, yeah, we're going to find that he does. So she goes down to the threshing floor. She did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. I love this. You know why? Because it's like, it, was a, it, it had to sound like the dumbest thing that anybody ever heard. Think about where this lady came from and what she was being told to do. But you know, you know what? She realized that, hey, all things are new. <laughs> that was the way I used to do it. This is the way it's being done now. I don't understand it. I don't always accept it. But it's pretty clear that's the way God does things. And I'm just going to do it that way. 
Man, I'll tell you what, there's a lesson in there for all of us, isn't there? Hey, we may have done things a certain way, but all things are new when a person comes to Christ and all things are, are, are new and old things pass away. And sometimes what God tells us to do is going to be so foreign to our ears that it's not going to make a lot of sense. But if we've got the reliability and the dependability on the word of God, why did Ruth believe Naomi? Because she was trustworthy. Because they had a relationship. There was a precedent that was set. There was no reason to doubt her. She had her best interest at heart. So she said, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. So she went down to the threshing floor. And she did all according to that mother-in-law had commanded her. It says, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and she uncovered his feet. And then she laid down at, at his foot. A woman of humility. A woman who was, able to, was going to accept whatever it was that he would say. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and he bent forward and behold, this woman was lying at his feet and he said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. You know what she's saying right here? She says, I want you today to be my redeemer. I know that you want to be my redeemer, but I also know there's a big difference between someone wanting to redeem me and me coming to claim you as my redeemer. Wow, what a wonderful picture. Men and women, don't ever misunderstand something here. There are many people who believe in their head all the claims of Jesus Christ. They believe that he's the son of God come in human flesh. They believe that he's born of a virgin. I know because I was there at a point in my life. I believed all these things. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. I believe that. Yes, he died on the cross. I believe that. Yes, he rose again. I believe that. Yes, I, I believe that. But then when someone asked me this question that I could never answer that particular moment in time, it threw me through a loop because I'd never heard it asked before. But he said, when did you believe that? When did you accept Jesus Christ as your kinsman redeemer? That's not the question that was asked but that's what I'm asking you in context of what we're talking about. When did that happen? When? What do you mean when? I've always believed that. Oh, really? Ruth always believed that Boaz loved her and wanted to redeem her. But there came a point in time where she had to claim him as her redeemer. She had to humble herself before him and she bowed down at his feet and she laid there in a, in a position of humility and she said, I've come to tell you I want you to redeem me this day. A picture of humility. The same humility that we have to come before God. It, 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 this isn't a matter of, oh, I'm going to add Jesus to my life. I'm going to do that today. You don't understand what you're doing. It's a picture of a humble heart before God that says, in and of myself, I am worthless. There's nothing good in me. All have sinned and God's fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. In and of myself, there is nothing good that all my righteousness and good works I, I now understand are like filthy rags before God. And the only way I have a chance to get into heaven is if I claim Jesus Christ as my kinsman redeemer so he can buy me back because I've been lost. What a picture of humility before God. That's a picture of a humble heart that, that, that accepts Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. We got this flipping attitude today of just come walk down front and just sign this card or just do this or that. And there's no brokenness about sin. There's no understanding about being lost. There's no understanding about the consequences of sin and the judgment that's to follow as far as hell is concerned. There's none of that because that offends people. We don't want to offend anybody. We want to fake them out into believing that they're right with God when they're really not. 
There's a brokenness that has to take place. And Ruth, in her humility, went down to the threshing floor that night and claimed him as, as her kinsman redeemer. And she was willing to allow him to choose to redeem her or not to redeem her. And she didn't want to embarrass him in front of the crowd. She did it at night so he could say, hey, either I'll do it or I won't do it. And as we see here, he said to her, may you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after a young man, whether poor or rich. Don't forget, Boaz is probably the same as, as Naomi. And Ruth is a beautiful, athletic young woman. And he's saying, you know what? You've come to me and your kindness has been extended not only to your mother-in-law, but now you've extended it even to an old man like me. You could have went after the rich young Turks that had all the money. You could have done that if you wanted, but you didn't do that. It says, and now my daughter, don't fear, for I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence, a, a woman of quality and character. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will be, oh, it says, but, and now it's true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. I want to redeem you, but we got a problem. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, uh, good, and let him redeem you. But if he doesn't wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another and said, let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he's saying, hey, stay here tonight because it's dangerous. I want to protect you. I don't want anything to happen to you. But before it gets light, I want you to get up and get out of here because I don't want anybody to know that you came to claim me as redeemer tonight because this other guy has, is first in line to redeem you and he may find out that I, I want to redeem you and I can't tell you that I can redeem you because I can't do what's not right in the sight of God because God says he has the first right to do it. And as bad as I want you, I'm still going to do what's right before God. Whoa, there's a dating principle. That's a dating principle. Think about this. As badly as I want you, I cannot do what isn't right before God. Oh God, if, if our kids, dear Lord, if they would just understand that and re realize how true that is. If many of us would understand that. As bad as I want this, I cannot do it if it's wrong before God. And I must do what's right before God. Boaz was a man of character. As badly as I want you, yet I'm not going to compromise what God says is right and wrong. And we're going to just have to wait upon him and trust in him. And if this is meant to be, then God will bring it about. Oh, man, what a way to start a marriage, huh? That'd be a great way to start a relationship. We can't do what's wrong before God. But if God keeps us together and leads us to get married, then he will bless us because we've committed our ways to him. Wow. So she did what he said. She got up at night, and right before break, and she left. Again, he said, give me the cloak that's on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. He said, look, here, give me, give me your cloak, and I'll give you some more good stuff. Let me give you another present. Now, if I understand this right, and I checked this out as much as I could because I was blown away by all this, but this comes out to 60 pounds of barley or wheat. Ruth is a studette. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. I mean, it says she was athletic, but think about this. He goes, here's 60 pounds, and she's like, no problem. <laughs> so... She gets, she takes this back and, and, and now the first thing Naomi says is as she walks in the door, how did it go? How did it go? Tell me all about it. I'm making some coffee. Got a little donuts on the stove. I got, oh, we got, we got a bagel and, and sit down and how did it go? And, uh, and she said, well, how does this look? Drops the 60 pounds of goodies on the floor and Naomi's like, we're in money. We're going to the chapel. We're going to get married. Oh, this is so awesome. And, and so that's, that's what happened. 
Well, then the very end is, is what we see here, and we'll end on this, but that's this. Look at the anticipation of what Boaz is going to do. Everyone's excited. Things are cooking, man. Things are heading in the right direction. But she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. So Boaz says, hey, we got a problem. There's a guy who can claim you before me, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get it all worked out. And so Naomi tells Ruth, wow, and this is a principle, I want to close on this, but that's simply this. It's all in Boaz's hands at this point. You claimed him as your redeemer, and now it's his job to redeem you. Folks, don't miss this. Jesus wants to redeem us. We as individuals must claim him as our redeemer. Once we've claimed him as redeemer, it's now his job to redeem us. There is nothing left for Ruth to do. Folks, Jesus, as he was nailed on the cross, and the night before when he prayed to his father, said, I have finished the work that you have sent me to do. And as he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. The book of Hebrews says that he has gone back and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Not just literally sitting there, but he is seated from the standpoint that it means that he is now at rest and his redemptive work was finished on the cross and as he rose from the dead to defeat death. Please understand this and understand it once and for all in your life. If you have claimed him as your redeemer, then he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day that he comes again or until the day that he takes you into his presence into the kingdom of God. There is nothing left for us to do. He either redeems us or he doesn't. You either rest in that or you keep trying to work your way to heaven. And it doesn't work that way. If you have claimed him as redeemer, you can now rest in assurance that he has redeemed you. Wow, that's good stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day again that we can look into your word and that we can see a picture so beautifully portrayed in front of us of the redemptive work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I know there are those who are here today that continue to believe that somehow they can work their way into heaven and that sinful pride of man will keep them from you for all of eternity. God, help them to see that they need to claim Jesus Christ as their kinsman redeemer who can buy back that which was lost, our fellowship with you, our eternal life in your presence, the joy that we had in our relationship with you, the peace that we can have an assurance that we know that we're right with you. God, help us to recognize that this is not just a, a, a mere fable or a mythical story, but it's a true story that depicts what you would ultimately do in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God, help us to be people that recognize that there must be a point in our life where we can say that we went to the threshing floor and claimed him as redeemer. 
And then let us rest in the fact that he has redeemed us. God, we just thank you for this wonderful gift of grace. It's not anything we deserve, obviously, because in and of ourselves there is nothing good. But God, we're just blown away as Ruth is with just your graciousness and your love for us. God, we just thank you and we praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.